गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय तद्भक्ताय नमो नम प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड मॉर्निंग एंड हैप्पी न्यू वीक एंड ट्यूसडे ओवर देयर टुडे वी आर कंटिन्यूइंग विद आवर सीरीज एंड radical personalism more come more godia like terms shrimati radical personalism we are in class 21 today and we are starting a new sub series a new topic inside a bigger topic of radical personalism today we will be starting to talk about contemplative prayer during today and next week next tuesday <clears throat> for two weeks we will be talking about this idea of contemplative prayer today with the subtitle of the art of sacred appeal but before turning to that particular topic as usual let's begin with a brief recap <clears throat> of what we saw last tuesday since the topics are always connected and overflowing into one another so last tuesday we saw the third and last part on our section about uh, divine ignorance and we talked about the dark night of the soul and we started before turning to the dark night of the soul itself we spoke about how god is always found in the darkness not only in the light but darkness is favorite place of him so to say where he resides where he works in he himself being dark shamsundar ganasham and so on and of course darkness is not a bad word as we clarified but actually by dark we mean something that happens without our knowing where we are in the dark certain things are there that we do not see but that's not necessarily something bad <clears throat> so we spoke about how the divine for us divine beloved is always endless mystery not only for us but in different mystical traditions as well and therefore if god is a mystery eternally we should be very careful of ever thinking i already know him or i know him completely and so on or i even fully believe in him i already have full capacity full belief in him and in this way neglecting the eternal unfolding and potential for more of that to happen so in other words we need we spoke about the need to get rid of our limiting limited and limiting ideas about the unlimited and our our unlimited potential in connection to the unlimited big part of our problems in practice is that that we are dealing with everything being unlimited but we are constantly projecting limits because in in, in the environment and that suffocates us and takes away all potential for enthusiasm inspiration and discovery so we also talked about mystery and secrecy in the godia tradition we shared some quotes from other traditions and then we turned to our own tradition we mentioned how we godias have so much detail theological detail in depth description of god's life details associates loving interactions that we can fail in sense of having too much certainty certitude but i know who god is and forget that again god is mystery krishna is eternally rahasya or paramaguhya in the words of the shrimad bhagavatam which means supremely secret confidential mysterious and the word mystery interesting that god is a mystery in himself 
mystery is connected in his in its root to mystical mystical presence so again it's not a bad word and our god again personified mystery ganashan the cloud dark cloud of unknowing so to say someone who can only be seen when he wants we mentioned that part in that sense god also can be seen as mystery we can have his darshan when he opens the door when he gives the mercy it's not in our control we gave the examples of brahma the dawn of creation of brahma in the bimohan lila nard muni also we've shared the idea of divine separation as a form of divine unknowing god is lost from our sight and when we meet him again we find him upgraded in his presence and our realization of him and so on <clears throat> and also god is eternal mystery in the sense that he is in eternal becoming. He is not stagnant in one particular place and never evolving in his loving capacity, in his beauty, in all that he can be. So he remains in an eternal unfolding and becoming. He's always happening. And he's not a noun, but a verb and a very active one, as we mentioned. And we concluded that section mentioning that even Krishna is a mystery not only to us, but a mystery to, me, to himself. He cannot reach the end of his own glories because there, are, there is no end to his own glory. So all this especially uh, described, depicted in the form of Mahaprabhu, who is exploring the depths of his own heart, his own beauty, Radha's love for him, and so on perpetually. So there's no problem with something remaining a mystery for eternity even. So then we conclude talking about the dark night of the soul, connecting all these points. And this dark night of the soul being, being about being led to a darker space, again, where deeper healing, deeper learning is happening, although we don't know what's going on because we do not see. It's dark. But it's a process also. It's not an event that happens once. We get rid of it as soon as possible, and then we are better or something. It's a continual, ongoing process, our inner life with God, inner life with God. Again, dark means that God precisely works in the dark in most cases, because if we will know what we are to relinquish in that inner process, probably we will be not take even the first step and we will pray so much opposition. So we need the night to be dark for our own benefit. Another way to refer to dark night of the soul will be, we invoke the term liminal space or threshold area outside of our comfort zone when real learning happens. And how one of the main experiences in this dark night of the soul is also that where our habitual sense of who God is no longer works, needs to be updated and upgraded. And there may, we may feel he has disappeared while actually he's getting closer. But since that new proximity is unknown to us, we may first experience he's getting farther or disappearing. So constantly we have to continue ask to him, like some Francis do, who are you? And who am I in relation to you? Or on every day, on a daily basis, we have to receive a new answer to that quote-unquote same question. So this dark night of the soul is not a place to live as soon as possible, again, or to move forward, but to go through. And always in the spirit, what we describe of a foundational yes. Instead of starting with a no of denial and rejection, a yes of foundational acceptance. And we concluded our last class and at the whole series on divine ignorance by recall, recalling how, okay, our goal as Godias is to reach Vrindavan, to reach Nityanavadip, the Gyan Sunyavakti that we find there with the devotees, for example, relate to Krishna, not as God, but as their beloved friend or whatever. 
But in order to reach that state of divine ignorance, Gyan Bhakti, first we have to go through all these different layers of sacred divine ignorance that we shared in this series. We have to make friends with uncertainty and paradox and doubt and unknowing, mystery, darkness. So all these topics are foundational and in the service of our ultimate attainment in our Gaudiya Sampradaya. So anyhow, some summary from the last class and last uh, topic on divine ignorance. And today, let's make a brief introduction in connection to the new topic we are starting, in connection to the previous one. A brief explanation of today's title, Contemplative Prayer, The Art of Sacred Appeal. <clears throat> so from divine ignorance and all that it implies, now we are the topic is overflowing and we are being carried in those waters with that, that, with that overflowing into a related section. So we go from the realm of contempt, from the realm of divine ignorance, sorry, to the realm of contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer being, being a place and a practice <clears throat> to exercise, to implement in practice all the things that we have been talking in our last series on divine ignorance. So hopefully we can somehow connect these two dots together, put together. In fact, this is a topic, contemplative prayer. This is a topic that somehow not only is connected with divine ignorance, but which somehow integrates many of the crucial aspects of radical personalism that we already talked about in the last different series of topics. Ideally, every topic is, of course, interconnected with the other. <clears throat> so how is contemplative prayer connected to some of the main topics we share? Well, with vulnerability, in prayer, you need to be vulnerable. You need to be naked and present yourself to the divine in that way. For prayer, you need individuation because individuation has to do with being ourselves and allowing the divine to be who he is. And in prayer, that, that's the basic stance, to be who I am and allow him to be who he is and introduce himself further to us. Regarding the topic of non-dual thinking that we also shared a few months ago, probably, we will share today how contemplative prayer is not merely a practice, something we do, but stands, which sees the relatedness of everything. And that's connected to non-dual thinking, the relatedness, the non-dual foundation of reality. In connection to Guru Tattva, which was a topic we also shared recently, Sri Guru is ideally uh, to embody this prayerful attitude toward life itself. And of course, as well, the ideal disciple. So again, this is connected with prayer. And of course, with divine ignorance that we just finished. In prayer, we have to embrace divine ignorance. We are expected to throw ourselves voluntarily into the embrace of the unknown, so to say, with full dependence, with full trust and surrender. That's the ideal spirit to enter into prayer. So that's quite connected to entering into the darkness of divine ignorance. So in this way, all these topics are connected to each other. And for the next two classes, today and next Tuesday, we'll be talking about prayer as an art. Again, the art of sacred appeal. And also we will be talking about prayer as a sacred realm, as a place to be attained, inner place, as a state of consciousness, so to say, to participate in permanently. Not prayer as a mere thing that we will do a few moments a day but an ongoing participation. And also in part, we will be talking about this 
particular topic in contemplative prayer since I personally feel that a proper appreciation and application and the role of prayer in itself remains somehow um, underestimated, so to say, in many Gaudiya circles today. Not, not everywhere, of course, but in some places. And sometimes this is being reduced to a mere repetition of prayers instead of a heartfelt, heartfelt, spontaneous invocation, or sometimes it's reduced to counting instead of chanting, to quantity instead of quality. So anyhow, in the service of, of the Sampradaya, whatever we may need as individuals in our own practice, hopefully we can share some thoughts that may nourish each of us. So let's go to our first section after this brief introduction, where we will be starting defining what contemplative prayer is not. Sometimes, many times, it helps us to begin from that place to, again, unlearn <laughs> before we learn, to, to, to deconstruct some false myths, myths about whatever we are trying to approach so we can approach it from scratch and with a clear view of what it actually is. So first we will begin what contemplative prayer is not. <clears throat> so let's begin by establishing that there is a difference between contemplative prayer and prayer. We can establish a difference and I'll try to explain that. Of course, by prayer, we may also refer to contemplative prayer, but by contemplative prayer, we may not be necessarily referring to all other forms of prayer or so-called prayer, as we will see, something that happens in the name of being praying, praying. So let's begin by analyzing some of those uh, other prayers, apart from contemplative prayers, other form of prayer who do not necessarily fall into the category of contemplative prayer. And it, this won't have too much to do with how we perform the prayer on the outside, but how we do con conduct ourselves on the inside. So we will share from worse to not so worse examples, so to say. And also, of course, after this, after this negative definition and indirect definition, what contemplative prayer is not, we will enter into further detail about what contemplative prayer actually is, which, of course, ultimately represents the very essence of what the word prayer is about. The very the essence of prayer is contemplative prayer. And, and the essence of this is what? Dialogue, relationship, and reciprocal participation with the divine and us, an ongoing conversation. So for most people, most people, and this is, has to do with what contemplative prayer is not, <clears throat> for most people, <clears throat> prayer becomes something functional, basically. And what do I mean by functional? That's something we do to get something. So I'll pray to God. So he gives me that. He provides me that. He solves me that. He helps me with that. So in those cases, and I'm not condemning that fully. I'm just making a difference of, of, of qualities of, of approach, so to say. <clears throat> so in those cases, when engaging in, in, in such prayer, we are not necessarily invoking a new transformed consciousness. We are not different after the prayer. We remain the same. We remain egocentric. And now we are trying to manipulate God in many of those cases instead of everyone else as it has may have been the case before. Probably in our daily life, without knowing that, 
in many ways we try to manipulate other people and sometimes we carry that same tendency to prayer and we address God in the same way, trying now to manipulate him, which of course it's even worse. Hmm? Prayer, ideally prayer is not an attempt to manipulate God, but it can end up being like that. Hmm? But ideally, again, what's prayer? Prayer will be our most authentic expression. That's the potential of prayer and it should be like that. But you see, if, if, if we don't properly have a correct idea of what prayer is, that beautiful, most authentic expression can also be the worst possible thing we can ever do. Trying to manipulate God, trying to exploit the divine for our personal advantage and ulterior uh, agenda. That's totally unbecoming. But that can happen in the name of prayer. So in connection to this latter case of manipulation, God exploitation, quote-unquote prayer, so-called prayer, we should call it like that, become, becomes then like synonymous with a neurotic system of God domestication, we could say. I'm trying to make him do what I want and control him and domesticate him so he provides what I know I need or something like that. So in other words, we often resort to prayer uh, when we want God to do our bidding instead of us doing his bidding. As embarrassing as it may sound. Or we simply pray with a shallow confidence that we are doing God's bidding, which may be even worse, <laughs> by merely, I don't know, completing our daily number of prayers or our daily, for Godias, our daily number of rounds. And we think, okay, I prayed today. I'm totally sure I did my part. Or in some cases, we, we do not pray at all. That also can happen in the life of a practitioner. We lose touch with that practice. It stops existing for us. And it, should, it shouldn't happen because so much is there. It's in there. It's so much of such a portal is waiting for us there. Also, what's contemplative, what contemplative prayer is not, prayer also does not constitute what we may call meritocracy or a moral worthiness contest. That's not prayer, contemplative prayer. Like, like, what do I mean by this? Now, moral worthiness contest or, or meritocracy. Like, okay, I will pray and I will be rewarded hmm, in the future for having attained the proper quantity of tokens or whatever, however you may like to conceive. No? And you are not considering at all the internal quality of the presentation, but just attached to the particular reward you were attained by doing playing the game right, so to say, by doing your homework. But again, prayer is not a, an effort-based endeavor that it only depends on what you do. And if you do your thing properly, the result must come. It's not a calculated interaction with Bhagavan. But actually prayer, again, is the most genuine and spontaneous way we can possibly submit ourselves unto the divine and the most intimate and spontaneous where he will reciprocate with us has nothing to do with something formulaic, mechanical force, depending on our own effort and so on. And it's not at all about deserving. Again, it's not a meritocracy. It's my merit. I deserve this. And that is not about deserving. Prayer is about humbly begging for that radical grace that we don't deserve, but we so much need. So it's always important to 
to have this clear. So when we approach prayer, we approach it with the proper humble spirit, Trinada, Pisunichi, and so on. But meritocracy is there. One example, for example, of in the Gaudiya tradition, one example of the above meritocratic prayer, if you want to call it like that, will be when devotees say or think hmm, that, for example, I've heard that many times, by chanting my 16 rounds and following the four regs, four regulative principles, the 16-4 formula, so to say, Srila Prabhupada will, will take me to Golok. That's warranted. In a very, like, again, formulaic, mechanical, calculated way. Like, if I do reach the number, this has to happen. However, the question, and, and as I hope your common sense also dictates you, takes you here, the question in that case will be, what does it mean to chant 16 rounds, to complete my rounds? What does make my rounds complete? A number? What does it mean to follow the four regulative principles? Just something external that I don't do? Or, I mean, chanting 16 rounds, completing my rounds, chanting three nam <laughs> means chanting offenselessly. That means to chant the name. It's not Nama Parad. Now, I don't think Srila Prabhupada implied, you chant 16 rounds of Nama Parad and I will take you to Gulag nonetheless. That's, that's not how it works. So we should be very careful about projecting these misconceptions. Now, what does it mean to follow? What does it mean following the four regulative principles? Well, for example, does it mean no meat eating? For example, that doesn't mean to follow that principle or, or or actually that principle is not about not meat eating, but about being vegetarian, the positive side to that. Or even better, it's about being non-violent, even beyond one's diet. Because you can be vegetarian, vegan, breatharian, but still you can be violent. There, there can be himsa, not ahimsa in your relationship with other people. But the principle is not even limited to being non-violent, even in a more positive way, it's about being loving and caring and compassionate. Or even better, it's about being as loving as you can. Not only loving, as loving as you can. So that's very different from saying no meat eating. Try to try to apply to, to unfold the fullest implications of the principle. No meat eating, no, where it all converges in its ideal unfolding, be as loving as you can. And the same with all the other principles. So that's how it works. <laughs> and Golok, when you say, I will be taken to Golok, again, what's Golok? As we all see in, the, in our last series of class in this whole series, Golok is a state of consciousness. It's not a geographical three-dimensional place. So a state of consciousness that you can attain by voluntary choices <clears throat> during your sadhana, during your practice stage. In other words, we have to develop our own relationship with Krishna here and now. It's not that I will be taken magically somewhere and then I will get to know what's all that about. I have to choose and decide and enter into that now, begin on some level. And it's not that someone will take us there magically without paying the actual price for that, without us knowing which is the relationship I want to have with Krishna. You know, I don't know who, which my Bhav is. I don't have a clue about that, but... I will be taken to Golok and I will be suddenly informed over there with which department of service uh, I belong to. Okay, you are Batsalia camp, go there. Okay, thank you. It doesn't work like that. All those things have to, 
gradually develop <clears throat> and the beginning places here and now. So in summary, again, the classical ways of praying, for most people at least, are again, petition, asking for things or situations or whatever, or in some cases, gratitude, but which is also tied to the first one because gratitude will think, oh, thank you, God, for sending what I requested through my petition prayer. So it's, a, it's an extension of the other one, which again, we are not condemning them, but on some level, at least we are making it clear, that's not contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is any of the things, real prayer, substantial, essential prayer. Contemplative prayer itself might be best reserved for what we may call a basic disposition of relationship towards God, towards the sweet absolute, which is based on our present level of communion with him, where we are, where he is, who is he for, he's for me, and who am I for him, trying to be open, naked in, in relation to all those things, presenting ourselves mm, as, an, as the offering itself, instead of requesting for offerings to ourselves, trying to live our life in that spirit. Again, dealing with whatever situations in life camp, whatever problem we still have to deal with. Mm. So prayer is not about problem solving that's an important point it's not when i whenever i have a problem go to god like, like they say you know everyone is an atheist until and unless the plane starts to go down oh god save me you know solve my problem <laughs> but prayer is not about problem solving or in case we want to use that term okay pr prayer is for solving problems then the only problem that prayer has to solve is us we are the problem. We are a big problem in this. <laughs> so lots of things need to be solved. So if you want to think of prayer in terms of problem solving, we are the only problem that needs to be solved. Apart from us, we shouldn't use prayer for solving other things because we won't be solving anything. We will making the problem even bigger. So contemplative prayer, again, is also not limited another idea. Contemplative prayer is also not limited to a mere recital of prayers. It's part of that, but it's not limited to that. But contemplative prayer has to do with whatever we may happen to be doing in a prayerful mood. It's not about what we do, but how we do it, which is the inner space we are inhabiting. Prayer is ultimately a mood. It's not a one-time act, a one-act performance. Prayer is most like a way of life, lifestyle to be thoroughly uh, assimilated mm, through dedication, of course, through practice. Mm. It is not an occasional weekend ritual, so to say, or daily affair of a few minutes, but it's something with the potential of becoming second nature mm, in us, and something with the potential of becoming not only a genuine source of shelter and divine revelation, but even prayer can become has the potential to become a very part of us, a very part of our own identity. Yeah. Once the, the idea came of, okay, someone who writes is a right, becomes a writer. Someone who plays becomes a player. And someone who prays becomes a prayer. <laughs> Even grammatically it works. So you are, we are to become prayer. If you pray, you become prayer itself or prayer becomes part of you, part of us. So in the, in the Gaudiya lingo, the word for prayer is bandhanam, one of them, bandhanam, which means also to offer obeisances 
but interestingly also it speaks about prayer, praying or reciting prayers. Sometimes it's more connected to that. But again, praying is not only about reciting prayers, like offering prayers from other authors, which is perfect. I'm not against that. It's beautiful. So much insight and realizations is there. Is there. But also there is place. Praying, bandanam also has to do with composing our own prayers. And not necessarily, I mean, writing a book on that. You can do that, of course. But during the moment of prayer, allowing spontaneity to come according to your particular situation and composing your own prayers in the time of praying. Because, oh, of course, it begins, prayer is a state of consciousness, but it begins with certain moments in the day that you exclusively dedicate to that and gradually that extends and overflows the whole of your day. And again, prayer is not only limited to composing your own prayers. I mean, it's not only limited to offering prayers from other people to composing your own prayers, but it, it's not all limited to pronouncing words or even to having thoughts. All that can be a prayer also. But also, and especially we could say, prayer has to do with going beyond words and going beyond thoughts, beyond the thinking, the mind, rational mind and thinking capacity, and to present ourselves naked, again, internally naked in front of the divine, as we are in the present moment, with our heart in our hands, so to say, without filtering the experience with any preconceived notion, and allow Krishna to introduce himself further to us, more and more and more and more. No end to that. So in that way, we could say contemplative prayer is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle which that revolves around how we develop our loving relationship with the sweet absolute. That's ultimately what contemplative prayer has the potential to be for us. So a few words that mostly were connected with to the idea of what contemplative prayer is not, although we also spoke about what it is to balance, but mostly what it's not. So now let's go to the next section where we will be talking about what contemplative prayer is. <clears throat> so what is, known, what is known as contemplative prayer sometimes can be also known as contemplation in, in different Western circles and sometimes in Eastern, so to say, circles that will be mostly addressed with the term meditation. Again, it's a terminological issue. Don't get too much uh, trapped into that. But the point is that when we're speaking about contemplation or contemplative prayer, someone say, I haven't heard ever is that word coming from a Gaudiya circle. But that doesn't mean that, that then we are importing some practice and like doing call some form of cultural appropriation or whatever. I mean, it's not that there is contemplation in one place, so let's bring it from whatever, mystical Christianity or other tradition to our Gaudiya tradition. But actually let's rediscover how those things actually are present in our tradition. So in this case, at least, we are not importing some foreign thing to our sampradaya, which can happen sometimes. We already talked about that. You can also take some practice from other traditions that are not in your tradition, but are not all either contradictory to your tradition, and there can even nourish your participation in your tradition. There is place for that. We spoke about that when we talked about theological cross-pollination in one of our classes on non-dual thinking. But in this particular case, uh, contemplative prayer is part of our tradition. Mm -hmm. So 
it, although it may need to be framed in such a way that remains relatable for some practitioners and for some of us. So let's try as best as we can. How can we speak in terms of contemplative prayer as part of the Gaudiya tradition in a way that is relevant and relatable to us? So the word contemplation, let's begin with a few definitions, because it's always important, very nice to go to the etymology of these words, as we spoke with mystery regarding to mystical presence. And that speaks a lot about what the term and the practice and the experience of that is meant to be. So the word contemplation comes from the Latin roots, com and templum. Com and templum. Com means with, and templum means temple. So contemplation means with temple, if you will. And with temple, basically the idea is, this refers to live in such a way that we all, we should live in such a way that we always remain within a temple. We, have, we are with a temple or within the temple to make a temple in our heart, let's put it like that. In the words of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, when he sings about Mama Mandir, he speaks about the temple of his own being, to permanently stand on sacred ground, basically. And of course, we can do this. We Again, contemplation means that, to live in a temple, to become a temple, to inaugurate a temple in my heart. That's what contemplative prayer is about, contemplation become a temple. And, and we can only do that if we understand, understand prayer not as a mere one-act performance, again, but as an ongoing stance. I become prayer. I become temple. For example, in this connection, <clears throat> the Bible says, pray unceasingly, nonstop. Or Mahaprabhu will say, kirtaniya sadahari, which means always glorify hari. Or Krishna will say in the Gita, Satatam Kirtayantamam, always engage in Kirtan. So if we read all these statements as requiring words, always sing, always praise, always pray, how can you always do that without interruption? Only limiting, limiting to words, being limited to words. If you just understand these ideas, okay, prayer is... Always pray without interruption. How can you always pray with words without interruption? It is impossible to implement in practice. Therefore, the idea is prayer is not primarily saying words or thinking thoughts, as we say, but prayer, ultimately contemplation, contemplative prayer is a stance, a lifestyle, a state of consciousness. And we can inhabit that <clears throat> always, permanently, forever, so to say. <clears throat> And somehow for us, Gaudias, the idea of bandana or prayer, sorry. Morning <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> throat, it's always an issue here. So we have the idea of bandana in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, prayer. And we have kirtan, which means chanting names of God. But the two of them are connected, as you may imagine. Kirtan can relate to Bandhan in terms of prayerful spirit. Even if you may say Kirtan is not praying, but it has to be embraced from a prayerful place. And prayer is a place. So similarly, Kirtan, Bandhan can be tied with the Ang of Bhakti called Smaran. Sometimes it's translated as remembering God or thinking about him or meditating about him and so on. 
For example, in his most important instruction, arguably in the Bhagavad Gita, which is repeated twice, Krishna says manmana, baba mat bhakto, etc. But manmana starts. Give your mind to me. Or generally that's translated as always think about me. So again, the question comes, always think about Krishna. How can one always think about Krishna? Because if you think, okay, think about Krishna's reminding his flute, his feet, his whatever, bluish hue, the pitambar, some lila. But how can you always do that without thinking about something? How can you think of God anyway? Remember last class we mentioned God cannot be thought but loved. So my point is, of course, we can think constantly. We have that capacity and we can think positively, gratefully. I would wonder and praise Chamatkar perceiving God's presence in our everyday life through whatever is happening to us. And in that way, we can always think of him. We can enter into that mood and spirit. And again, that's that's more an inner stance rather than an act. I will always think of God. No, you enter into certain inner place where everything shows itself related to him as it is. So again, we see how this notion of smaran, which can be connected to prayer, is also, again, not only a practice to do, but ultimately a, a flow, an ongoing state to attain. So, of course, although contemplative prayer can be, especially in the beginning, mostly conceived as a practice, and it's okay, we are not canceling that we have to begin somewhere. So let's begin dedicating some time per day to only praying and eventually hoping to attain prayer as a permanent inner state. But ultimately, it's important to know what you ultimately pray is about. So we are not limiting its scope from the very beginning. So ultimately, prayer is a stance. Again, it's a state of consciousness. And sorry if I'm repeating this too much, but we need to pound the post in a proper way. Or if we want, we could say prayer is ultimately a feeling. Even in in this connection, we could say prayer as a feeling. We could say that the feeling that we experience in connection to God even if it's not accompanied by words, is in itself prayer. It's not that, okay, you didn't say anything, so that was that's not considered prayer. But if you're having a particular experience and feeling in connection to him, that's prayer, even if there is words. And sometimes there may be words, but not feeling. You know, like John Bunyan famously said, he says, in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Of course, there can be words with heart, <laughs> but if we have to choose between these two options, it's better to have a heart without words, a feeling, a prayerful feeling, despite not being anything being said outside. So words without heart, that cannot be that cannot be considered prayer. That's not prayer. Even if externally we are copy-pasting, repeating, pirating, whatever, that's not prayer. In fact, we could say that even if recitation of prayers start to be done in a mechanical way, in a very copy-paste, superficial way, or even manipul- manipulative way. So if recitation of prayers is, are not, is not leading to a change in our consciousness, to an inner transformation, it may be probably counterproductive. And the more we do that, the worse it will be. It's not that just by doing that forcefully, mechanically, something positive has to happen. Not necessarily. That will be a form of Niyama Graha, in the words of Rupa Goswami. Doing something 
without the proper attitude or understanding of why to do that. Hmm? So let's try to continue defining what contemplative prayer is. No? It's not an easy project. I mean, what is prayer? You can put in bulk words, but it's always <laughs> very elusive and beyond our mere understanding. <clears throat> Another understanding of or definition we can invoke in, regarding, in regards to contemplative prayer will be the state of that person who presents in front of God, before God, the inner condition of he or she who presents before God. Hmm? To ask him, in other words, is when we are praying, we are asking him or us, where am I to approach him? Where am I? I want to determine, establish, where am I internally when approaching someone like the divine? Because remember, the function of prayer <laughs> is not to influence God uh, and to put him in my service. The function of prayer is to modify the nature of the one who is praying. <clears throat> Again, it's not to domesticate or manipulate the divine. It's not I will try to influence and change him so he agrees to do what I want. No, it's how this practice, this moment transforms me, and modifies my nature. And again, it's not... Where are you? Are you there? Why are you you're not replying? But before asking him, where are you, God? I should ask, where am I? And from which place I'm saying, where are you? From which place I'm calling him? From which place I'm praying? Like the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi that we say last class, he will every night spend saying like, where are you? Who are, who are you and who am I? It's another way of asking the same. So we have to empty our mind so our heart can be filled by by the divine's reply. In fact, one follows generally, often one follows the other. First, empty your mind, put aside all these prejudices and presuppositions, and then your heart will be filled. And, and as you can infer, such a disposition, introspection, is what we refer by here by contemplative in relation to prayer. Contemplative prayer. Again, contemplative has to do with with this disposition and willingness hmm, to ask ourselves, where am I in my attempt to address the divine? Hmm? Where I should be? Therefore, we could say in that way that the essence of, of, of contemplative prayer is to experience rea the reality of our relationship with Bhagavan. Hmm? That's the essence of prayer, to experience the essence of my relationship with him, the reality. Where is this relationship really about where, where is it standing, that relationship? Where am I in connection to this relationship? It's a relationship, don't forget, it's reciprocal. And in this sense, prayer is the place also we could say, since prayer is connected with the relationship with God, therefore prayer is, a, is the place for of the ultimate freedom. Because prayer will be that moment or that state where you're experiencing yourself as all that you can be in relation to God. If you're properly situated, you will have an experience who you are in your potential, your ultimate freedom. That's prayer. That's what's waiting for us in prayer moments. So in this way, prayer could be described as a daily, we could say prayer is a daily rendezvous with God, a daily Abisar, our love journey is a love journey toward God. And as, as we know, this Abisar, a love journey is ultimately depicted <clears throat> in our Gaudiya tradition in the Rasa Lila, with the gopis running to meet Krishna, running in Abisar. The gopis being the very personification 
of this spirit, very spirit of contemplative prayer. <clears throat> Place of ultimate freedom, who they are in connection to him, fully, fully open to that. So, of course, that say we can also describe contemplative, contemplative prayer as an art. That's the subtitle of today's lecture, The Art of Sacred Appeal. As, as with any art, we learn the art and we have to become accomplished in that. So in order to learn the art of prayer, before praying, we could say we have to learn how to pray. We have to learn what's prayer, who are we in connection to him and so on. But also interestingly, we could say that in the, in the very attempt of praying and in the very process of learning how to pray, one is already praying. That's how it works. It's not that, okay, first I have to learn how to pray and I have to try, but I'm not praying yet. No, no, you're already praying. And the only thing that remains after that is just to continue polishing, refining and perfecting your prayer. And that has no end. There's no end to perfection. When we say perfection, be careful of making that a limiting idea. At one point you reach perfection, there's nothing else to attain. No. Perfection implies full scope for ongoing and limited further progress. So that's the only thing that remains to continue perfecting our prayer project, so to say, with constant practice. Till again, our very practice becomes our very life. In the beginning, we may be thinking my life, my practice, my prayer moment in the day and something else I do. But at one point, all this will converge. At one point, there won't, won't be a difference between spiritual life and material life. Sometimes they would say that I have my material life, my spiritual life. Okay, you choose to create that dichotomy. But ideally, the two of them should converge. You have your life. <laughs> so at one point, there should be no difference between your practice and your life. You started practicing, but you practice so nicely that all the fruits of your practice overflow and become your life. That's, a, that's what it should happen. And prayer, again, is not an exception to this rule. <clears throat> there is a famous Christian monk which authored one book called The Art of Prayer, since we are talking about the art of praying. He will say in this connection about the ongoing nature of how much we can learn to pray. He say, you please never consider a spiritual work firmly established or finished. And this is particularly applicable in connection to prayer, he will say. The learning in prayer can be considered finished, and he say, quote unquote, finished, when in your prayer, we do not do anything but going from one feeling to another. That will be, okay, you have your PhD in prayer. You're just being carried by the emotional waves. Again, like from sadhana bhakti, you attain bhava bhakti. So practice takes you to the realm of ecstatic emotion. And you continue practicing, but from that place. And we have that potential to be passing, carried from one feeling to another in conditioned life. We pass from one feeling to another, but not in connection to God. But this indirectly is pointing to how we can do the exact same thing, <laughs> but with God in the center. That's ideal prayer. That's what we refer here by prayer, being in potential, a permanent stance, a permanent feeling. So let's try to learn from our conditioned life, so to say, 
and see, okay, this indirectly showing me how all the things can be happening in the most ideal, unique way with Krishna in the center. So anyway, how some words regarding what contemplative prayer is. And of course, despite the above, hopefully inspiring words about what contemplative prayer actually is about, of course, we should be realistic and acknowledge that there will be lots of struggle in our prayer project, especially in the beginnings of it and so on. And the struggle is not because so much because of prayer, that because of prayer is by nature, nature something difficult because it's not but because we are the difficult ones, because our own ego opposition is there to all that prayer implies, to all the beautiful things we mentioned about prayer, ego is generally not agreeing with that. So in this connection, prayer could be defined as a training in dying. That's a very interesting definition. Training in dying, and dying to the false ego, to the false self. Surrender, that means training in dying, letting go, learning to lose graciously and, and allow God to tri triumph over our resistance. Allow yourself to be defeated by mercy. Die to live, in Hegel words, Hegel's words. So prayer as a training in dying. We should be willing to that. So let's turn next to the next section to see how these dynamics of contemplative prayer unfold during our first attempts of contemplative practice? What do we need to consider when beginning our practice and when finding ourselves in so much difficult sometimes that we maybe want to run from that and not pray any anymore at all? <laughs> so let's go to the next section called the experience of contemplative prayer. So the actual experience of contemplative prayer could be described, if you want to use some terms, as heart surgery. We have the physical heart surgery, but this is another type of heart, another type of surgery. You know? So that's experience. Our heart is being, there's something going on there, open. It has to open. A sacred moment, and gradually, as we mentioned, a more and more permanent state, that's prayer, where we open our hearts, again, surgery, and allow Bhagavan, to open his heart in connection to our heart, our open heart. It's an exchange of open hearts. First, this exercise, again, an experience can happen at certain specific moments a day. Again, we have to begin somewhere and you have some, okay, I will spend some minutes, half an hour, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, per day, one hour to, do, to enter into this space. But gradually those moments, as you may imagine, engaged properly in those moments will accompany us for the rest of the day, the week, month, the year, and life in eternity. So, but prayer, again, is heart surgery. The experience of prayer is heart surgery. We have to open our heart. Bhagavan will open his heart. He already has his heart open. We have to open ours. And then prayer will be an, experience, an exchange of hearts an exchange of open hearts. Try to imagine how beautiful that is between Bhagavan and us. We should remember, again, how much Krishna knows our hearts. Not only that, how much he knows our heart, but how much, how he knows us through his own heart. Put those things in place, your heart and his heart. How much he knows 
your heart, our heart, and how he knows our heart through his heart. And what's his heart about? Try to combine these two. And then we could say, Bhagavan knows us by heart, to make a play of words in English. By heart doesn't only mean by memory, by heart. He really knows our heart through his heart, by heart. So even if we don't know who we are, we don't have a clue of our potential. And even if we don't have a clue about what's the content of our own heart, Sri Krishna does. He knows. That's our hope. That's important to know. How It's important to know how to rest in that thought. I mean, he fully knows my heart through his heart. This is not, okay, let's rest in that thought as a lazy device. But actually, it's a very humbling, moving experience that will give us enormous hope and strength to continue, especially in struggling moments. <clears throat> and of course, needless to say, the way that Krishna knows our heart Every heart is always through the lens of his own heart. And that means through the lens of unconditional love, because that's what his heart is made of. And already we shared some words, if you may recall, especially in the class on one of the class on vulnerability, we shared some ideas on God's unconditional love. But this is such an important point, and it's coming just in context here while talking on prayer that allow me to share a few more words about unconditional love. See, and again, by knowing how God is loving us unconditionally to begin with, this can inspire us a lot and tremendously to reciprocate with him in the same way. The way he approaches us will tremendously affect how we approach him. The way how we understand his approach will affect how we approach him, in, especially in the midst of our prayer struggle again. Um, and, and by contrast, if we don't have that preliminary knowledge, if we are not properly educated about God's approach, original approach through unconditional love, probably we may end up forcing ourselves to serve Bhagavan unconditionally without knowing how unconditionally he already is. And that may result in, in different forms of frustration or meritocracy. I have to deserve this to do my best or even neurosis. And trying to give myself in a forced way without understanding how Krishna himself has given himself to begin with. So that's very important, very crucial point in addressing the practice and experience of contemplative prayer. So as, as we quoted in, in, in some classes, in the class of vulnerability, I think, St. John of the Cross, he will say very beautifully, try to love what God sees in you. In other words, God is seeing you through the eye, through the lens of unconditional love. Try to see that thing that God sees in you through unconditional love. Try to see how you are lovable by him in a very humbling way. So allow yourself to be naked. Allow yourself to be seen naked, to be loved by Krishna in that way. That's darshan. Remember, darshan is not, I'm seeing God. I am allowing myself to be seen by him as he sees me through unconditional love. I'm allowing that naked glance and accepting I'm being loved unconditionally despite all the mess I may still be. God is seeing something lovable in me. <clears throat> Again, that's not arrogant. That's really humbling if you understand it. If we have not experienced ourselves through the reality of unconditional love, if we do not see ourselves in connection to that, still we have 
lots of work to do. And there are so many degrees of experience in that because that's who we are. Again, who we are is we are someone who is constantly seen through the eyes of unconditional love. Please replace all the wrong uh, ideas about yourself that are not very inspiring at all and try to embrace this real one. You are someone who is constantly seen without a big time, without a beginning in time, you are someone who is constantly seen through the eyes of unconditional love. That's who you are. That's who we are. Again, that's humbling. That's not something that promotes false pride and so on. And contemplative prayer, again, has a lot to do with realizing this fact, with the natural, of course, correspondence from us to such love when we become aware of that, which will be also a loving and selfless seva offered to Bhagavan. But one of the main udipanas or triggers that we may need to first receive in order to offer ourselves in that way to understand how he is offering himself to begin with before we did anything even in connection to him. There are many quotes in Shastra which confirm this point. For example, let's go in the Bhagavad Gita, we have Krishna, of course, repeatedly confirming how much he loves Arjuna, many verses, how much he loves his devotees in the Bhagavad and Hambhakta Paradino and so on. In other words, Krishna speaks clearly how much he loves each of his devotees, extremely in love, and we know that. Something similarly, uh, again, is emphasized throughout Shastra, where it is all said, for example, that God remains non-attached to the non-devotees, and thus neutral to them. Samuhamsar Babutisu, unattached to his devotees. And here comes a point that I would like to clarify in this connection, that we may think, okay, Krishna loves unconditionally his devotees, but he doesn't love the rest. He's neutral or indifferent to everyone else who is not his devotee. And that's a delicate point. It's something delicate to say that has some theological implications, which may mean, so Krishna is not loving some people. He's something else apart from a loving being. He's something else apart from being loved himself. That's a little bit contradictory to the very ontology of who God is. So if we abuse, what, what's the meaning of God loves his devotees and remains neutral to non-devotees? We have to understand this properly without any ontological contradictions, because if we abuse this notion, God doesn't love anyone apart from his devotees, this can conclude us, lead us to conclude, sorry, that Krishna only loves his devotees that much. And of course, it's true that Krishna is wildly in love with his devotees, but this doesn't mean that he doesn't love his non-devotees in any way. So let me clarify. Let me give you an example to, to further illustrate this. We have the example of a mother, for example, that sometimes is brought in connection to the love of God. <clears throat> Something that gets closer to that. So we have a mother who has a baby, and the mother is loving his baby. Despite the baby is not recipro reciprocal in that love, the baby is only depending on the mother. And even without knowing that, the baby has not awareness. She's my mother. I'm depending on that. It's all very instinctive, if you will, mm? not being conscious of that. Mm? So the mother is loving the child. The child is not loving the mother. He's not aware of who the mother is. There is not conscious reciprocity. But in that stage, again, the love of the mother is there from the beginning. 
and it takes a particular shape, but it will take new shapes as, as long as, as much as the baby starts to become aware, my mother, my loving mother, the love of my mother, and starts to reciprocate consciously with her mother. You follow my point? As much as the relationship develops, the child will reciprocate with the mother and the love, the original love that the mother had will take a new shape to reciprocate with the child's love. But the love was there to begin with, but taking a certain shape because of the non-reciprocity from the child. So the same idea can be applied between us and God. We could say Krishna loves everyone to begin with, and there's no beginning. <laughs> and he loves us even when we dare to deny his existence, even before our devotee, so to say, chapter, when we may have been atheists. I say, God does not exist. He still loves us, but he will love us in a very specific and different way once we acknowledge his existence, once we, we acknowledge the relationship and that develops. So his love will correspond to our reciprocity, to that initial love he had for us. You follow my point? So in that sense, we could see it's not that Krishna only loves his devotee and doesn't care for anyone else. That doesn't depict a very loving, beautiful God. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, another idea that may, be, may need to be clarified in this connection of unconditional love is the idea that sometimes it's say, okay, Krishna is absorbed in his lila. And he's so absorbed that he's not aware of whoever is not in that lila or whoever is not his devotee. So he's not aware of me probably because I'm not in that lila yet. So that's really discouraging for a devotee. Okay, I'm praying to Krishna with his immersing his lila. So my prayers are going anywhere, are not touching his heart. But that doesn't mean that he's not aware of my prayers or that he's not loving us in any way, as we already explained. <clears throat> Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur clarifies this in his Raghavadma Chandrika. Yes, Krishna becomes Mukdata, Mukda, sorry. So he becomes like bewildered by the love of the Brajavasis and forgets his God. But at the same time, he retains his Sarbaknyata, his omniscience. Interestingly, paradoxically. So he, if someone is omniscient, he knows about everyone else's existence and inner condition. So our prayers are heard. God remains aware of each one of us. Don't forget that. <laughs> Don't become unaware of his awareness. So God loves each of us in a particular way. Again, even if we do not address him as such, we don't love him, he's loving us in the same way he's loving every soul prior to a jiva, voluntarily choosing to love him, to reciprocate to him, with his, to his original love. So what to say if we think of the divine as Mahaprabhu, Nityananda, Sri Gornitai, so compassionate, so aware of our present situation, wherever we may be, as fallen as we may be. So anyhow, a few words, but try to understand this. Bhagavan, therefore, loves us unconditionally every one of us, unconditionally, from day one. There's no day one, anadi, without a beginning. And he loves us for who we are. He sees something that is lovable, but we could say also he loves us despite who we are, despite the messiness that still may be there, which makes his love more unconditional. Not only because we don't reciprocate with him, that's unconditional, but also because because, because we don't deserve that, because the mess we may be, that's unconditional, even more. In other words, 
if we are already being loved by Krishna, even when we live as if he does not exist, which can happen even to us on a daily basis, <laughs> this demonstrates that we never did anything to deserve that love. Because for another time, we have even rejected his existence, but still he loves us. So that's very clear. shows we did nothing to deserve that. And we won't be able to do anything in the future to deserve that. In other words, unconditional love cannot be deserved. Unconditional love is too much to be deserved. So be careful because generally in conditioned life, we try to deserve whatever we do or whatever we want to attain. We move with an orientation of meritocracy. Again, merit, personal merit, personal deserving. But actually in connection to God's unconditional love, as you may imagine, <clears throat> deep humility is required to coexist with the idea of unconditional love. If not, it will be too much to our, for our false ego. Another word to speak about unconditional love is costless mercy. We use a lot in our Gaudiya lingo. Maybe unconditional love is not that much use. We may need to invoke that quite often, more often. So costless mercy doesn't mean priceless mercy. There is a price to pay, but which doesn't mean that we deserve that. But that means that we have to do something in order to properly acknowledge that, admit that, receive that, honor that. And what's the price to pay for costless mercy? Hmm? Again, to be extremely humble. Because to acknowledge I'm receiving something that no matter what I do, I will never deserve it. That's a hard pill to swallow for the false ego. Hmm. No matter what I do in eternity, I will never deceive such a thing which is so good, so great. It's too much to be deserved. Such humility needs to be there to coexist with costless grace. If not, we will run to the Department of Justice and want to deserve things. And then you are thrown into the karma agency again. So the price to pay, again, is to believe in something, unconditional love, costless grace, grace sorry, to believe in something that for the ego is may seem too good to be true, maybe even difficult to believe, but which in fact constitutes the nature of the ultimate reality. What's the nature of the ultimate reality again? We are being loved unconditionally. And as beautiful as this is, <clears throat> as undeserved as, it, as that is, it's not something easy for us to accept. Because again, false ego gets in the way. Therefore, <clears throat> since these implications of unconditional love may be something really difficult to accept, as beautiful as they sound, Therefore, it may be similarly difficult to engage in contemplative prayer, as simple as contemplative prayer is. Why? Because again, contemplative prayer is basically that. No? Means, contemplative prayer means to remain aware of our need for costless grace and, of, and to realize how that mercy, unconditional love is already coming, how little I deserve that, and how humble I need to be in order to allow that magic to happen, so to say. And that's all what contemplative prayer is about. And that's not so easy for us because we are the difficult ones. <laughs> also, it may be difficult because, um, again, many of us come from a conception of spirituality, which, which, which is, we conceive spirituality many times as a punish-reward system. Mm -hmm. And you have to play the game right and it will work instead of a system of transformation. 
no punish reward instead of real conversion we we many of us conceive spirituality as transactional i do you give me what i deserve and i pray to you and you provide but it, spirituality is not transactional it's transformational and that's what unconditional love can do with us can do in us as long as we become aware of that of the presence of that it's already happening but we are not there we are not happening <laughs> So in other words, many of us still think we could do another term. We could say we could use this. We think in terms of requirement religion hmm? instead of relationship religion. We think in terms of correctedness instead of connectedness to make some play of words. So we pay attention to how you are conceiving your participation in Krishna consciousness. Hmm? So in, in many cases, again, this is probably because our attitude toward God, our not to reach these stances of punished reward, you know, correctedness. Many of for many of us, this happens because our idea of God, our attitude towards God sometimes is formed in childhood. And that has to do with experiences with parental figures, authority figures, uh, which make make us carry unconscious fears and misconceptions. I had an authoritarian father that needs to be appeased. So I need to be a good boy. So he is not angry with me and he gives me some candy. And we may relate that way, project that then to the guru. As we talk in the Guru Tata series, we project that to God. And we should be careful not to project our unresolved trauma into the realm of transcendence and lose sight of the reality of unconditional love waiting for us there. Therefore, the challenge, again, for those willing to embrace contemplative prayer is to relate to, to the Bhagavan who really is Bhagavan, and not to the Bhagavan of our childhood imagination, trauma, of our childhood projections, or even cultural limitations. So what's the Bhagavan we are believing in, we are trying to relate to? Is the actual Bhagavan, or is our imagination Bhagavan? <clears throat> On a daily basis, we need to... Uh, upgrade and actualize and update these conceptions. So as, as difficult as contemplative prayer may be, and difficult doesn't mean impossible, please don't forget that. Difficult is just the middle point between easy and impossible. As difficult as this may be, we need to embrace it. Because again, we urgently need Krishna's costless mercy, Krishna's costless mercy and unconditional love. And already that's there, but we may not be aware that that's there and coming to us. So when we say, I need mercy, basically we actually mean, I need to become aware of how mercy is already there. It's not that mercy was not there. And only when you need it, it's coming. <laughs> so we need to become aware of that. And, and in, in, in that regard, please remember that the mercy of Krishna, as we always mention, the unconditional love is so merciful, so powerful. It's more powerful than all our anarchists pulled together. So don't think that, no, but I'm so contaminated. His mercy can never do too much because look how fallen I am. No, that's another trick of the false ego to remain in the center. My anarchists are more powerful than Krishna's mercy. No, you put all your anarchists together on one side of the scale and Krishna's mercy on the other and Krishna's mercy will tip the scale. Mm -hmm. So while praying in the moment of contemplative practice, let's not lose sight of this fact of who Krishna is, of how merciful he is, um, how how we are he already is loving us 
unconditionally, much more than what we can imagine. Again, this is not a force in position, something artificial. That's actual reality. Everything else is in foreign imposition. And sadhana is to become aware of the things on a daily basis and to play out of the implications of that. And remember, just in case, one more time, <clears throat> prayer is not about changing God or changing God's mind about us. That's a more accurate way of putting it. Praise, prayer is not about changing God's mind about us, you know, like convincing him that we are not that bad and you can provide to me some type of meritocracy like, so he can love me. Again, that's not about, it's, not, it's not about that. But prayer is more about changing, again, not, much, not so much God's mind about us. Prayer is about changing our mind about God, our conception of who he is. And changing our mind about ourselves regarding who all that we can be in relation to who he actually is. So therefore, in other words, the idea or the misconception that we have to earn God's love, that we have to make ourselves lovable for God, such idea is basically ridiculous because he's already loving us. He's already finding something lovable through the high of unconditional love. And contemplative prayer is, is, is here to make us aware of all these facts. The very practice of that is to enter into that state of sacred awareness. So anyhow, some words in relation to <clears throat> especially unconditional love that I consider very important as to what the very experience of contemplative prayer is about. Let's go to one last section for one, a few more minutes where we will be talking about the practice of contemplative prayer. So in connection to how our practice initially starts and in connection to God's unconditional love, even before we know about him, as we already mentioned, let me share a few words from Thomas Merton that he very nicely depicts how we begin to pray and what's the background of our starting to pray. So he says, it is God who first calls us to pray. Therefore, prayer is a response to that initial call. Success in prayer is not to find God, but to realize that we cannot find him unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. And therefore, one should pray with that spirit. That's the best way to look for and to find God in prayer. So famous words for him. No? He's calling us to pray to begin with. So when we are praying, we are responding to his initial call. It's not that we are calling him initially to begin with. He always made the kickstart. Hmm? And that connection we could call Krishna the seekers, the seeker of all seekers. We may be seeking him, but he's the seeker of those who are seeking. He's always the one making the kickstart. Like when Srila Siddhar Maharaj, one of his books were published, was published called In Search of Krishna, Reality the Beautiful. So the title seemed to indicate we are seeking for him in search of Krishna. And then he felt we, the next one has to be called in another way, to show how Christians are looking for us. And he, that was called loving search for the lost servant, to make that point. It's not that we are only seeking him. He is seeking us, and he's beginning the project. So he's trying to call us in that direction. So after this initial kickstart, so to say, from Bhagavan himself, it's that we will start our practice of prayer. It's not that I will control and decide out of my own. Hmm? 
And this practice of prayer, since this section is called the practice of contemplative prayer, the practice of contemplative prayer could be compared to, to alchemy, if you will, to use that analogy. Now, like a long process to transform a substance and gently extract, if you will, its purest intrinsic potential. This is accomplished, of course, in alchemy through a series, through a sequence, I should say, of distinct stages and even multiple complete repetitions to refine the product to perfect pure to perfect purity to its highest degree. And in this sequence, of course, it generally goes like this in prayer, the alchemical prayer. First, you have to recognize what's God's position, as we mentioned, who he actually is beyond my own ideas of that, which is his unconditional love and intentions, as we described first, who he is, then we who recognize our own position, who we are in relation to who he is, our brightest potential in connection to his unconditional love. And third, recognize who he is, who we are. Third, the recognition of the shared bond between us two, mm -hmm. reciprocal dealing. So in other words, him, me, us. Mm -hmm. Beloved, lover, love. Mm -hmm. As Tamal Krishna, my friend, put it very nicely in one of his books. So in this connection, <clears throat> It is important to know the following, to recognize who God is, God's position, and to then recognize our own position also clarifies that neither can take the place nor do the job of the other. If I have to recognize your position, my position is each of us have our own position. And God may have infinite power and mercy, but he cannot do our own job. He cannot be ourselves and do our part of being receptive to his unconditional love and mercy. He cannot do our work of contemplative prayer. You cannot pray to God, Krishna, please pray for me. No? Do, the, do the prayer that I have to do. Again, it's not a question of, of being worthy of, of costless mercy, but being positioned to catch it. We will never be worthy of costless mercy. It's an oxymoron, contradiction of terms. We cannot deserve that. But we should be positioned properly, internally, to catch that what, which already is there. That's our role in the equation. So how to practice contemplative prayers, uh, centering prayer, sorry, contemplative prayers, you may imagine. It's not some magical thing. You do this, this, and it's happening. It's basically a disposition. Like the example I gave last class of centering prayer, when someone can sit silently and not try not to think, try to just open one's heart and allow God to introduce yourself to you. And of course, see all that happen, all the opposition that comes and become aware of all that and the struggle starts. <laughs> uh, or for Godias, also the practice of chanting the name of Krishna also, as we will, as we have mentioned, can be done in a prayerful spirit. We will talk about more that more about this in the next class. But again, there is no magical method like Maharaj, how to do contemplative prayer. Give me the key. It's basically in whatever form it takes, according to your moment or tradition, try to be present in the present moment, which is sounds may sound like a cliche, but that's not so easy to do. Try to really remain in the present, not go to the past, not go to the future. Try to remain aware of who we are and who God is, all that we talk today. Try to remain aware, which is God's approach toward us. And then let's try to open, open ourselves to receive that and not present any opposition or try to deal with it, nor project any presupposition of who good is 
who God is, who God should be, or what should happen in prayer, because we come with all this bunch of expectations, how things should happen. Again, control mechanisms. So it sounds easy in theory. Just sit, be present, allow God to introduce himself to you further, don't pay opposition. But it, it sounds easy in theory, but in practice it can be terrifying, I can tell you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a struggle, especially to confront how much opposition we may still be presenting to the divine flow, so to say, to God's attempt to shower us with unconditional love. In other words, everything is already present, but we may not be present yet. And that's what we were trying to do when, when engaging contemplative prayer. Just We can also say that just as the physical body evacuates toxins or waste products, Contemplative prayer could also be seen in this connection as some form of evacuation process. Mahaprabhu will say, Cheta Darpana Marjanam. In the beginning of chanting, this will happen. You will clean this mirror. So this evacuation process, again, of cleaning is usually prevented, especially in the moments that you try to practice contemplative prayer. That will be usually prevented by different defense mechanisms. And part of the practice of prayer is to become aware of those things those things through which you filter reality on a daily basis. Defense mechanisms, repression, fear, or especially as, as surprisingly, surprised as you may be by hearing this, thinking. Thinking. Thinking is a marvelous way of not facing the real issues of life. Like, like a wall of protection against your unconscious, so to say. If you don't believe me, try it for yourself. Try to sit Try to pray and try not to think, but just to be present to how Krishna wants to approach you on that moment without thinking, without thoughts. That won't be that easy. <laughs> no, in fact, we could say that if there is anything that we are addicted to the most, someone may think, oh, addicted to, to drugs, to TV, social media, sex, or whatever, no, the thing that unanimously we are most addicted the most is to our own thoughts, to our own way of thinking, not only to thinking, but to the way we think. But the point is that our real life is not about us and about our limited thoughts. That's not the whole of reality is not comprised there. Ultimately, we are in response to something much greater than ourselves and our limited thoughts. And that greater thing, of course, Bhagavan himself is looking at us and conditionally is calling us lovingly and saying, I love you. I'm calling you. That's what we have to feel and hear in prayer. A universal call. That's a flute clarion call that Krishna is playing constantly. You will never see Krishna in the altar without the flute. He never stops engaging in that call. But we are not present. That's the point. That's the problem. That, like Teresa de Avila once said, very interestingly, say the trouble that most of us have in connection to prayer is that we pray as if God is absent. And that's a torture, you can imagine. Try to engage in prayer, losing sight of God's presence. Presence, no? It won't work. So that's a big problem. We pray as, as if He's absent, or in other words, or maybe thinking He's present, but with the wrong idea about who He is. That's another way of making Him absent. So we try to pray, but we forget all these wonderful facts, who Krishna is, what's his love for us. And therefore, prayer ends up becoming something boring, 
empty, torturous, or as I say, manipulative, manipulative toward God, thinking he's something else and we can obtain something, whatever. But in contrast to this dreadful scenario of so-called prayer, when we really pray, when we really enter a contemplative space, that's when we are able to be who we actually are. And that's where the moment where we can actually recognize who Krishna actually is as well, where everything becomes crystal clear in reality. Who am I, who he is, what everything is. To be free from all these distorted pictures. Therefore, all you have to do <laughs> is to stop being who you think you are and to let God be God for the time being during prayer. Again, sounds easy. Whether you sit in silence, whether you chant your rounds, however you approach the prayer practice, the form it takes is secondary. Try to get this point. The main thing is the inner spirit. No matter what you do externally, without the inner spirit, whether you chant, whether you meditate silently, you, won't you will not experience the result of contemplative prayer if the inner proper attitude that we are trying to describe is not there. So anyhow, some words in connection to, <clears throat> to the practice of contemplative prayer. Let's share a few, few words of conclusion, wrapping up before closing the curtain today. So considering all the things that we've shared today, which is just a point in an eternal line, of course, we could conclude by saying that prayer is something, again, it's not in our control, something magical, real contemplative prayer is something that happens to us much more than anything that we privately do. Try to get the, the feeling of the words. In fact, eventually in time, if you pray properly, you will find yourself as Richard Rowe will say, preferring to say, prayer happened and I was there. Instead of, I prayed today, which is more an ego thing. I did that myself. No, no, I was. I happened to be there and prayer happened. So it's not an action that you decide to engage in. On some level, yes, I will pray, but the ultimate mystical experience of that is not in our control. So it's not so much something we decide, but an epiphany that comes to us and eventually gradually become second nature. But, but again, for that epiphany to happen, we have to do some things ourselves, like the one we have been sharing today. Therefore, we could say that contemplative prayer is not something in our control, but a gift you ultimately bestowed upon us. It's something that is being done to us. And the only, quote-unquote, things we have to do, which will take lots of work, is, so to say, to get out of the way, to not put opposition to the flow of unconditional love, to be there, present, attentive, with our heart as an open vessel <clears throat> to receive the gift. The gift is already there. But we have to put the hands, as Srila Sinamrasa will say, the only thing you have to do is to put your hand to receive the gift. That's your part in the game. Sometimes it sounds so difficult. Put your hand, receive the gift without presenting opposition while trusting divine grace. So a few words of conclusion and about the art of sacred appeal that contemplative prayer is about. We'll conclude today here. And a brief homework for those who will like to do. And again, try to do it in, if you want, not out of duty, I have to, but in a natural way. So to begin with, at least try to spend, if you are not already doing that, try to spend 
some moments every day of this week, and hopefully only not this week, to trying to open yourself deeply in contemplative prayer, as we have described, whatever has touched you and inspired you, <clears throat> especially in this class, try to dedicate some moments every day and try to open to that experience and after the week, see how it worked and hopefully it worked and you did your part and it will work if that happens. Krishna is already doing his part and you can incorporate this type of experiences and moments and practices in a very nourishing aspect of your sadhana. As we mentioned, that's an essential part, aspect of our Gaudiya tradition. So we'll conclude here and next Tuesday we'll see each other again for the second part of this section on contemplative prayer where we'll be speaking about developing a contemplative mind, which is, of course, quite in connection to what we shared today. It's just an overflow of the same, quote-unquote, never the same topic, and how we can develop a psychology, a way of relating to things and living our life, again, a lifestyle, contemplative mind to get closer and closer to this idea of contemplative prayer as a lifestyle, as a stance, as a mood. So see you next week. Thank you so much for your time, for your presence, for your attention, and for for being there in prayer as well. Sriman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Sri Gaudiya Sampradaya ki jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Praman Haribu, Mancha Kalpataru Vyascha, Kripa Sindhu Vyayiva Chapati Dhanam, Pavanipyu Vaishnavibhya Namo, Ananta Koti Vaishnavrinda ki jai, Gaur Haribu.